You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. I think the new ethic is founded on the volatile and non-transferable platform of human emotion. It's purely visceral feelings and sentiment, which are themselves inscrutable. The problem with CRT is that it has the same problem that the white nationalists do. Just define everybody by their race and not who they are as an individual, where you have the white nationalists doing this and you have the critical race theorists doing this. They're just doing it in different directions. But given the challenges that black families face specifically, I don't think it's too much to ask for the leading civil rights organizations to talk more about the importance of the black family than they do about the importance of Planned Parenthood's agenda. And the only way he can justly forgive is by paying the price for those sins himself. And so this is the way humanity can find meaning and purpose and know right from wrong. And that truth's only found within scripture. Young Lutherans ages four and six learn the evening prayer from listening to Issues Etc. I thank you, my heavenly father. Through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you will virtually catch your Well, among your unanswered questions on this Tuesday afternoon, question about two words in the Nicene Creed that have been, well, uh, in dispute between the Church East and West for a little bit less than a thousand years and the Son. There's a question about fasting, biblical fasting. What is it? And should a Christian if they're a member of a labor union, should they go on strike? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller in the first hour or so. We'll discuss several recent surveys on abortion with Dr. Michael New of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Then we'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson on Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2 with Pastor Tom Baker of law and gospel. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. He's author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. It's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome to you. Thank you, Todd. The first question for you, Pastor Wolfmiller, comes from Matthew. He says, Pastors, can you go over the problem of the unevangelized? I've yet to receive an answer that feels satisfactory and maybe there isn't one, but I'd greatly appreciate it. The problem of the unevangelized is more a philosophical apologetic issue of how can all be called to Christ when there are people or were people who were born, lived, and died without ever hearing the gospel or having any knowledge of God. It's a question many Christians are asked when talking about Christ and the Word of God. Right. It's a great question. It is a common question. It's good for us to think about, although we'll test the limits of our knowledge with this question, because some things the Lord just hasn't told us. And we always want to be careful to to say what the Scripture says, but not to say more than the Scripture says. The first thing is that we know that the Lord desires for all to be saved. This is just a clear testimony of Scripture. In fact, when Peter's talking about the patience of the Lord, which seems to us like slowness, that Jesus hasn't returned, he says it's because he desires for all to come to repentance. 
And that desire of God for all to come to repentance is what the old theologians called his universal benevolence, God's love for all people. And it's manifest in that not only did the Lord send his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to win and accomplish redemption for all people, but also that he sends the Holy Spirit to affect that redemption in the lives and hearts of all people, all people. And so I was reading some of the old Lutheran theologians this morning, like Hollitz, who talks about that he's going to emphasize this fact that it's not just universal redemption, but that the Holy Spirit also is working effectively to bring all people to salvation through the means which the Lord has appointed. That is the preaching of the gospel, baptism, the absolution, the ministry of the church, work through the Holy Spirit. So that we know on the one hand that God desires all to believe and come to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we see that not all seem like they hear the gospel, and that this is just sort of the evidence that we're given, and we're sort of stuck with it. So we know that the Lord is working salvation for all. It looks like some haven't heard the gospel, and we kind of have to stop there. There's maybe one more point that I think is helpful for the conversation, and that is that all families on earth at one time knew the gospel. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and we all come from Noah. And it does seem like, as the church goes out and is doing its evangelistic work, that it finds in various places those who trust in Christ and believe in him, that there was this kind of old knowledge that was carried along, uh, and that the Holy Spirit was preserving the preaching of the word in these various places. But that steps off of the sure word of God and into more historical questions, and I at least don't want to go much further than that. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, there's a tweet from Craig that says, why did Moses and Elijah come back on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was it to encourage Christ or the disciples? And why them and not Abraham and David, for example? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I've never actually thought about that before. Uh, why not Abraham and David? I mean, obviously, Abraham is the one who is given this, this promise that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And of course, so that his seed is the one that we were waiting for, the son. And then that is is given specifically to David, that the son of David is going to be the seed in which all the nations will be blessed. So yeah, I think that's a very interesting way to look at it. Why wasn't that on the Mount of Transfiguration? But the text itself tells us that it's Moses and Elijah. So I, I think that when we look at Luke's gospel, I, I think that we see this as an understanding that they are discussing the exodus, the exodus, and it's the departure. So think of it that way. That's the conversation. So the conversation is not about the promise given to Abraham or the promise given to David, but it's about the departure. So that's what they are conversing about, that they are with the Christ, just like Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt, delivering them, redeeming them from slavery and captivity under Pharaoh, who was a tyrant. And of course, the devil is the tyrant of tyrants, so delivering us from that sinful slavery that we have. And notice that in that passage itself, the voice of the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So I think that we want to tap into that also. The conversation is about the Exodus, but the conversation is also about how the Father is saying, listen to Jesus. So listen to the Son of God. So that's the one who you're to listen to. Well, that's the testimony that Moses was given and the testimony that Moses gave to the Israelites. I mean, this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, that Yahweh, your God, is going to raise up a prophet for you like me. 
and this is the one you are to listen to. Listen to him. So I, I think that it's key here with the understanding of what's going on in transfiguration that that's the one we are to listen to. And so it's confirming for us, confirming for the apostles, that this is the one that Moses had proclaimed, that we were waiting for. When you look back at Moses and Elijah, also understand that in the book of Malachi, Malachi ends on this note that we are to look at the Torah, the servant Moses, all the statutes, the rules, and the commands that God gave to him at Mount Horeb. And then also, it's in that same passage in Malachi where Yahweh says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh coming, that he's going to be the one who prepares the way. So there's this understanding that Moses is the prophet par excellence. You know, you have the five books of Moses. So the Torah, all of the other prophets are commentating are preaching on the text of Moses. I mean, so that's what all the other prophets are doing. And Moses is the prophet who writes. And then you have other prophets who write, the writing prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. But with Elijah, he would be in this class of prophets who are not writing. They don't have a book of Elijah, but they're preaching. So you have this preaching prophet. So we have this clear understanding of that proclamation of the promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head ever since the beginning of time, that that's the message that's been proclaimed by God's preachers. That's the message that has been written down in the scriptures for us to be certain and sure that we can hear the voice of God from heaven. And we know who we are to listen to. So we are to listen to the Christ. And you also notice that, for instance, in Romans chapter 11, when you're talking about what's happening with Israel, how they did not listen, they rejected God, which is a constant theme throughout the Old Testament, that they reject the Word of God and then they resist the Holy Spirit. So, of course, when the incarnate Word comes, they're going to reject Him. But this is where Paul's having this conversation about Israel, the ones who had the promise with Abraham and with David, and he's talking about this, well, don't you recall Elijah? Okay, what the scriptures have said about Elijah. So with Elijah, we have the written text that is written about him that records his sermons, his preaching. And remember, it's Elijah who's going up against the kingdoms of this earth. He's going up against King Ahab and Jezebel at that time, and they're bringing in all this kind of false worship. But he's going against the kingdoms that are just acting like all the other earthly kingdoms, just like Moses did when Moses went up against the king of Egypt with Pharaoh. But remember where Elijah's praying, he's conversing with God, and he's saying, you know, I'm the only one left. It's just me. But that reply of God, no, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, to this false image of God, to this false message. But God still has that remnant, that God is still at work bringing this story of salvation, the message of the Messiah, to his people through the preaching and the proclamation and through the written text itself. So I think we want to look at uh, Moses and Elijah there in the context of the Exodus itself about reassuring us that that's the one we are to listen to. And of course, Elijah kind of comes at the end, the tell end that we're waiting for Elijah to prepare the way, because Elijah is that preacher in the midst of a world that's falling apart, that is trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. And God's kingdom comes through the proclamation of the word. Faith comes through hearing the message of the Christ. Andrew has a question, Pastor Wolf Miller. How are we to understand the command to repent in Mark 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Luke 13, etc.? 
with the fact that we are dead in our sins prior to conversion, why command someone to do something of which they are incapable? Elsewhere, it seems to indicate that repentance is a gift of God. That would be First Timothy 2 and Acts 11. So why command someone to do something prior to giving them the gift? It's a beautiful question. I think the answer is in there when it's just the idea that we are dead in sin. That's the preaching of Paul in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses. And we see the example of Jesus coming to Lazarus, who was dead in his body, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And you just can't command a dead person to sit up. They're dead. They can't do it. But when Jesus says it, something different happens. And Lazarus does. He awakes from the dead. He comes out of the tomb. And this is what the Lord is doing in the preaching of the gospel. His word creates life in us. So his word creates repentance. In fact, the two words of law and gospel create in us the two parts of repentance, contrition and faith. And so the Lord grants us repentance. Those texts that Andrew quoted, 1 Timothy 2, 25, says it specifically, God grants repentance. Acts 11, to those who God granted repentance. Also, a beautiful psalm to consider is Psalm 80. I think in the English it says, turn us, O Lord. That's the word for repent. The Lord is the one who gives us this gift of repentance. But it is us who repent. So it's not like the Lord is repentant in our place, or the Lord is believing in our place. He does give us the parts of repentance, contrition, sorrow over our sin, and faith, trust in the promise of the gospel, and the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord does give us those things that he commands beautifully. That's his gift of repentance. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, they are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We've got a question from Alex on the orthodox position on the so-called filioque and the sun. Stay tuned. Issues Etc. listeners are needed to vote for president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by Midnight Central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. You can teach lay people theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Memoriapress.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. 
Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Alex has a question. He says, could you please explain the difference between the Eastern Orthodox position on the filioque, you'll have to explain what that is, and Arianism. As a layman, I struggle to distinguish the two. Yeah, so this is the filioque, this is the the Latin for uh, when we're talking and confessing in the Nicene Creed that we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. It's that additional and the Son. I mean, so it's that additional kind of a phrase right there, and the Son, the the conjunction, also the Son. I mean, this, this is who we're including in that. And so this is a beef, of course, that the Eastern Orthodox Church has with the Western Orthodox Church, the Western world. As Lutherans, we come from that Western heritage, of course. And the beef is that we had different ecumenical councils. We had different councils. We kind of established things. And so one of the things that we need to first understand is that initial council that's kind of discussing what's going on here with confessing God clearly. And the issue, of course, was Christology. The issue was about Jesus, the Son. And so that's the Arianism problem that we had. So 325 Nicaea, you have the council there addressing this issue. And what was happening was Arius was saying that there was a time when the Son did not exist, that he is not co-eternal with the Father. So that's going to be the key is that Arius is saying that the Son Jesus is a creature, that he is the son, the the logos, is a created thing that came sequentially in time, that he is not co-essential with the Father, uh, not co-eternal, not co-equal. I mean, so that's the whole Arian issue. So in 325, with that issue, we were trying to proclaim the divinity of Christ, and so we're confessing that. And with the creed at that point, at 325, you just have that statement that says, Oh, yeah, and we we also believe in the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, it's just kind of just there. It was as time went on and there started to become more new teachings that was diminishing the Holy Spirit. That became an issue of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So that's why later on at 381 at Constantinople, you have another ecumenical council where they expand the section on the Holy Spirit so that we have what we know now with the exception of that extra phrase and the Son, so that we would say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, period. That's what we said in 381. But what was happening between those two time periods of 325, 381, is that we're constantly confessing the Trinity. We're constantly using different terminology and language. And so we're, we're using this kind of an understanding of what do we mean by the Father and the Son. And, and so you'll have the understanding like at Toledo, there's a, a couple of councils there in 447, where we're, we're talking about the, the Holy Spirit in particular, that he is neither the Father nor the Son, but he is proceeding from the Father and the Son. 
I mean, so this was a, a confession of how we are to make this distinction in the plurality of persons of the Holy Trinity in 447. Or, or later on at a third council of Toledo, you also have that same kind of understanding that how are we going to confess this? And so you have that and the son there. We have that later on in 787 at the Council of Nicaea II, the second Council of Nicaea, where we say it this way, that he's proceeding from the Father through the Son. So this kind of this terminology was being used in different ways to confess that, that you have an understanding of all three persons are co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal. Now, of course, in the West, we use the, the Athanasian Creed. They don't use that in the East. And that's where we clearly say that the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, okay, that uh, he proceeds from both. And so the whole issue boils down to it's a difference in what an ecumenical council is, but it, it's also a difference in how you, you look at the text of Scripture itself. So what the East is trying to do is they're trying to tie this to the one passage in John chapter 15, verse 26, where it specifically says that the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. And so there's no and the Son. There's no additional statement there. So what the Eastern Orthodox is doing is they're going back kind of as a proof text saying this is what the text of Scripture says. But, of course, we want to understand that that text itself doesn't exclude this. I mean, it doesn't say he proceeds from the Father and not from the Son. I mean, but the text itself is what Jesus is teaching there, that he proceeds from the Father, which is true. So the East is kind of in this understanding that the same thing with Arianism, when you're diminishing the person of the Son, that the West is diminishing the person of the Holy Spirit. So for the East, they want to put the Father as the primary source so that the Holy Spirit is not diminished, so that it's not a sequential thing that you have the Father, and then sequentially you have the Son, and then sequentially you have the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of what they're, they're trying to avoid that kind of a confusion. But of course, in the West, what we're trying to confess clearly is that the Holy Spirit is co-essential of the same divine nature. He is co-eternal with us. Again, throughout the, the, that whole history and that time period, there were different ways to confess the Holy Spirit. I mean, Cyril of Alexandria, 424, 425, I mean, around that whole time period, he's the one who's saying the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. I mean, he uses that. Or other times, Cyril of Alexander will say that the Holy Spirit flows from the Father in the Son. I mean, so there are different ways to confess that. And again, the emphasis in the West is to establish clearly that the Holy Spirit is co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal with the Father and the Son. And when you look at John's Gospel, when John's gospel is saying or teaching, Jesus teaching us about the, the, the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So this is Jesus teaching us about the Holy Spirit who will teach us all things. And then he goes on to say in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor, the comfort of the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, so you have the Father sending the Holy Spirit, the Son is sending the Holy Spirit. And then later on in John 16, this is where Jesus says particularly that the Holy Spirit is going to glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You. 
all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so in the West, we want to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is co-essential, that he is of the Father and of the Son, just like the Son is of the Father. I mean, so it's of the same divine essence. So what the Son has, this Holy Spirit also has. You'll see that in Scripture itself with the, what we could call a genitive of origin, where we talk about the Holy Spirit also as the Spirit of Christ, like in Romans chapter 8, where we say in particular, but you are not of the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So here we're making that distinction between the Father being referred to as God, the Son being referred to as the Christ, because the person of the Son, we're going to emphasize the Holy Incarnation in that title of the Christ, because the Holy Spirit descended upon him according to his human nature in the form of a dove. So here we're calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ, or you'll see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, when we, we talk about the Holy Spirit working in the proclamation of the gospel, the prophets who prophesied of the grace it was to be yours searched and inquired about the salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. So you have this understanding, the scripture of this genitive of origin itself. I mean, even if you, you look at John's revelation and you, you compare that to John's gospel, we also see this same kind of an idea in Revelation chapter 22, where you see the river of the water of life flowing. So the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now here a distinction is made between all three persons of the Holy Trinity, that the person of the Father is referred to as God, and then you have the Lamb who is the Lamb of God. That distinction that the Father did not die for your sins, but the Lamb alone did. But this goes back to what John is saying in his gospel in chapter 7, when Jesus is speaking about, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then you have this, this comment there that now this he said about the Spirit. That would be the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were not did not receive. And so the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So in the book of Revelation, you have this understanding that the Holy Spirit, this, this river of living water, flows from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb, for the Father and the, and the Son are upon that throne. Or later on in Revelation, or actually back up in Revelation 21, again, you have that understanding where you have the language here, just like what John just said, it is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so this is Jesus speaking. Jesus, he had like in John chapter four, if you knew the gift of God and who it was is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you the living water. Later on in John chapter four, uh, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give, it's going to well up to eternal life. So you see this connection here of the water flowing. In, in the West, we are not trying to diminish the Holy Spirit. Sequentially that there was a time when the Holy Spirit didn't exist. I mean, that's what Arianism was trying to do with Jesus, that Jesus is a creature. And so what the East is, is afraid of trying to defend against is a misunderstanding that the West is saying that the Holy Spirit is a creature, like the Arians were saying about the Son. 
We're answering your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran in San Antonio, Texas. He's author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller as well. He's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel, Wolf Miller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Pastor Ketchelmeyer and Wolf Miller are graduates of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. On the other side, a question about whether or not a labor union member should go on strike. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration opens April 1st. Learn more at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Sioux Falls, South Dakota has big city nemities with small town feel, civil freedom, and the natural beauty of its namesake waterfalls. It is also home to Christ Lutheran Church, where the living water, Christ himself, flows. Located near I-90 and I-229, Christ Lutheran offers divine service with Holy Communion each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Learn more about this confessional liturgical parish at ChristSiouxFalls.org. Christ Lutheran Church, building upon Christ. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Beautiful Savior Lutheran, Spokane, Washington. Concordia Lutheran, Wilmington, Delaware. Grace Lutheran, Naples, Florida. Hope Lutheran, St. Louis, Missouri. Mount Olive Lutheran, Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Our Savior Lutheran, Ridgecrest, California. Redeemer Lutheran, St. Cloud, Minnesota. St. John Lutheran, Rosemount, Minnesota. St. Paul Lutheran, Sevierville, Tennessee. Trinity Lutheran, Walton, Nebraska. And Our Savior Lutheran, Houston, Texas. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, 
click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Wolfmiller, David says, I will soon be in a legal strike position at work. I have yet to cast my union vote, and I'm struggling with my conscience. Isn't going on strike stealing time from my employer? The union is not happy with the wage increase offered, but there are no issues with our working conditions, so should I be content with my wages? Wait, David, it's just a tough question. And I, of course, whenever your conscience is troubling you, it's very good to go to your pastor and talk to him about this and to rejoice with him in the forgiveness of all sins. When it comes to questions of, of unionizing and work and employee-employer relationships, the commandment that teaches us how we are to be is the seventh commandment, you shall not steal which teaches us that we should not only not take our neighbor's property and possessions, but also help him to improve and protect his property and income. The tricky thing is in the employer-employee relationship, there's two people somewhat set at odds against each other. In the, Are you trying to help your employer or are you trying to help your fellow employees? So you have this kind of divided service that we are supposed to be giving. So we want to be content with what the Lord has given us. That's certainly true. But remember that the Christian contentment does not exclude working to make things better. So we have this, and this is maybe just a broader point, but important for our vocation and for our life as Christians, is that we want to be content with the way things are today, but we're also invested in trying to make things a little bit better tomorrow. And if they're not better, if they're worse, then we're content with them as we receive them. But we're also trying to, again, serve and bless our neighbors so that things go better for them. So we have this question, and I think this is the clarifying question. What serves my neighbor? How does love look for my neighbor? Remembering that love is constrained by the Ten Commandments and given shape by our vocation and our callings. And what does love look like in this particular case? A lot of times it's very difficult to sort out. So we're trying to pray for wisdom and also pray for mercy, that the Lord would forgive all of the sin that we bring to the vocations and good works that he's appointed for us. Here's a question, Pastor Katchelmeyer for Adam says, I have an insight on the question about what happens to the souls of the stillborn, miscarried or aborted children. One of my scripture references, in addition to the ones that your guest shared, comes from David when he says in the famous account of David and Bathsheba, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept because I said, who knows, will the Lord be gracious to me and let the child live? Now he has died. Why should I fast? Am I able to return him to life again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. This is a clear passage that shows God's grace and love. It happens on the seventh day, resurrection day, before he would have been circumcised and he was conceived in his parents' sin. Factor in these things and the logical argument that a baby is a baby no matter its location, I am confident that there is precedent that we can say that some of the children that have died in these ways will be found in heaven. As your guest states, these are not clear truths taught in Scripture, but as a father who has lost a child to miscarriage, I take comfort in these verses. I would be interested to hear any feedback your guests have on these ideas. 
Well, again, here we have this uh, this a- Adam, Adam asking this question, of course, Adam being the first man who's created by being formed out of the ground. The God who can form out of the dust of the ground, and from dust we came to dust we shall return, we have that hope of the, the resurrection of the body, the God who can form us out of the dust, put us back in the dust, can take us back out of the dust again. I mean, that's the whole hope of the bodily resurrection. The God who knits us together in the womb of our mother is also the God who who can do the same thing. The one who creates us is the one who redeems us. And so that's where we set our hope. And, you know, Adam is also a fellow father who has suffered the loss of children within the womb, that the womb, of course, became a tomb. Now, that's not the intent. Death itself is not God's intent. That's not natural. I mean, death came into this creation because of sin. And God is the author of life. God is not the author of sin. Now, God knows all these things. So in the eternal decrees of God, God, before the foundation of the earth, made the decree that he's going to create and that man is going to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, the man's going to live. The man's not going to die. But then, of course, God, with his foreknowledge and knowing these things and bringing these things to fruition, the salvation of the souls, he also makes the decree that there's going to be one who is conceived in the womb, who is born of the virgin, and that's the one who will come out of the tomb. And so those decrees of God are made known to us in the book of Genesis. And as we see throughout the whole rest of the scripture, it's being unrolled, like kind of like a scroll. I mean, it's unfolded before our eyes, this uh, creation and salvation, the two great works of God, that redemption that's found only in Jesus. I mean, so yes, God knew what was going to happen with David. God knew that David was going to fall into sin, and God knew all these things were going to happen, and God, of course, declared that this child would die. And so God is in control, the one who intends life, the one who desires life, who takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. This is the one who gives us the promise of life, and that promise is found in the Son. So I think it's fair to take a passage like that and to take comfort knowing that the creator of all things is also the redeemer of all things. The one who made man is the one who became man so that he would suffer and die and rise again so that we would have newness of life, that we would have eternal life. So I think that it's fair to take that devotionally, meditate upon that, and set your eyes upon Jesus because Jesus is the author of life. What are your thoughts there, Pastor Wolf Miller? Sorry, Adam. And for all those mourning, this is, God's peace be with you. This is very, very difficult because as, as Pastor Ketchermeyer mentioned, it's not, we're not supposed to die. The scriptures call death the last enemy. And yet because Jesus died and rose again, he gives us a way to receive death as a gift, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Also true for the children of Christians. In a letter that Luther wrote to comfort parents who lost children to miscarriage, the thing that he gives to comfort them is that the children were included in the prayer of the church, that the church was praying for the unborn children, and that the Lord hears and answers those prayers. And I think that's right here in the text also, where David says, while the child was alive, I fasted, I wept, maybe the child will live, so that we are praying for the children, and we trust that the Lord hears those prayers. And I also think this passage is a beautiful piece of wisdom and instruction on the vocation of mourning because when death or whatever but especially when death takes those that we love away from us mourning is the shape that our love takes 
Mourning is what love looks like when the object of our love is gone from us. And this is a good work. The Lord has given to each one of us this vocation of mourning, some more than others, because some have experienced such loss and pain that that vocation is a, one of their defining vocations. And Jesus himself had that vocation. He was a man of sorrows. When Lazarus died, we mentioned Lazarus earlier, Jesus wept, which shows that our own weeping over those who have died is, in fact, a good work. But David teaches us that in this passage, when he stands up and he goes and he sits at supper, when he puts away his repentant clothes and gets back to the business of being the king, and they're all astonished because they thought that, well, he was weeping and fasting before the child died. He would be even worse off after the child died. David says, no, part of the vocation of mourning is that they cannot come back to us. Those that have died in the Lord's name, they, they don't come back to us. It's our calling now to go to them. So we make sure that our vocation of mourning doesn't interfere with faith and love for the promises the Lord's given and those who are still alive that the Lord has given us to love. So in my conversations pastorally with people who are mourning the loss of a child, it's something like this. Look, this is a good work to mourn the children that are gone. We just want to make sure the thing to look out for is that that good work of mourning for the children who are gone doesn't get in the way of loving the children that you still have. So we love those that the Lord has taken, and we love those that the Lord has given to remain. And so our whole life of tears and joy and service and sorrow, all of this is given to us by the Lord Jesus while we wait for him to call us through death to life eternal. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. A related question about, after baptism, whether a child's faith can be starved through the absence of God's word. Speaking the truth to power, the Lutheran option, cancel culture, media bias, a dying man's consolation. Some of your favorite guests will address these topics at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. Do you know the fastest growing religious group in the United States? Is it Roman Catholics? Nope. It's not Protestants either. Rather, it's those who mark none on religion's preference surveys. They don't belong to any particular denomination. They still believe in some sort of spiritual being and reality, but they don't believe and don't claim adherence to any particular religious group. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness picks up the question of the nuns. To learn more, visit witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Your Aunt Mabel's church banners are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell-bottoms. But now the colors have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to adcrucem.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct, Christ-focused church banners. We can customize size and color to meet your church's requirements. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. We often hear that all of Holy Scripture is written about Christ. 
but do you know where to find him in books like 1 Kings? If you would like to deepen your knowledge of Christ in Holy Scripture, join the Concordia Bible Institute on February 18th at Pilgrim Lutheran Church in West Bend, Wisconsin, as the Reverend Doctors Brian Gurman and Harold Tomish of Concordia University, Wisconsin, present a seminar titled Christ in the Old Testament. To register, call our office at 262-334-0375 or visit concordiabible.org. Those who play the mission card claim that they want us to focus on the mission of the church, but what they really want is compromise on biblical teaching in the name of the church's mission. Why does the mission card work? Because the mission card is a not-so-subtle accusation. The player is saying, if you disagree with me, you are standing in the way of the mission of the church, and no one wants to be portrayed as impeding the mission of the church. The mission card is a call for doctrinal compromise, plain and simple. That's from an Issues Etc. journal article that I have written called Playing the Mission Card. You can read it and get the online Issues Etc. journal absolutely free. Just go to our website, issuesetc.org. On the right-hand side of the website, you will see the big red subscription button. Enter your email address and we'll send you the next Issues Etc. journal absolutely free. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolf Miller, Bill in Sunnyvale, Texas, has a question. When a baby is saved through baptism, I was taught that her faith could starve in the absence of hearing the word, catechesis, and the Lord's Supper. Apparently, there can come a point in the child's life when the washing of regeneration is somehow nullified. Is this correct? If not, please explain. If so, my formerly Baptist wife points out that this sounds a lot like an age of accountability. Is she on to something? gently no so one of the differences between the the lutheran confession and and the baptists the way they shape up their doctrine is they believe in the perseverance of the saints once saved always saved at least officially and most i think do so that once the lord's got you he this kind of holy headlock he's not he's not going to let you go we recognize that the scripture warns against apostasy falling from grace as paul calls it to the galatians or to the shipwreck of the faith as paul mentions in philippians or maybe most simply what jesus talks about in the parable of the sower and some of the seeds falls among the stones jesus explains that this is those who receive the word with joy and believe for a while but then persecution comes along and it snuffs out their faith so that it is possible to believe for a while uh, this is the clear testimony of the scriptures so that our faith lives in repentance. It lives in the knowledge that we are sinners who need the forgiveness of sins. And the devil attacks repentance in a couple of ways. I mean, number one, he, he might convince us that we don't need to worry about sin. Just do whatever you want. That's, that's one way. Or he might convince us that we don't need to worry about forgiveness, like we're perfect. That's what Paul says when he says, if you, you're given the Spirit by faith, but now you're going to be made perfect by your works, by circumcision and the stuff that you're doing, you've fallen from grace. So that we we live beginning to end trusting the Lord's mercy, his forgiveness for sinners. But the devil's trying to pull us out of that great arc of repentance into the sea of unbelief and pride. And that is a possibility. Although we trust that the Lord who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance and faith are abiding in the assurance of our salvation. But while we still recognize the danger that we can be pulled away. So with babies too, the Lord gives the gift of baptism and regeneration. And then those children, just like every Christian, 
are kept in the Lord's gift of repentance by the preaching and hearing of the word, by receiving the absolution, when it's time to be public confessors of the faith, by receiving the body and blood of Jesus with his promise of the forgiveness of sins. This is keeping us in the Lord's shelter of repentance. Pastor Ketramaro, Bill has a second question. He says, if there was no death before the fall, what did buzzards eat? <laughs> Bill, that's uh, yeah. well. First of all, Bill, we, we look at the scripture and God reveals to us what we need to know for the knowledge of salvation. So we know that, but we do know again that death is not natural. So we know that uh, before the fall into sin, there was no death. So there was no meat to eat for the buzzards. I mean, they're not eating, they're not killing. So all creation. So every animal, every human being at that point before the fall, Adam and Eve are vegetarians. I mean, we're eating from the trees. We're, we're eating from the vegetation. And that's why when Isaiah will talk about the, the recreation, kind of how this thing will look on the last day, that's why you have things like a lion eating straw like an ox. The wolf and the lamb are laying down next to each other. The, the wolf's not eating the lamb. Uh, that, that's, that's the picture that we have. And so it's, it's not until Genesis chapter 9 where God actually gives us the gift of meat. That's where you have that command from God that uh, uh, where specifically God says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Why? Well, every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground, every fish in the sea. Why? Because you're going to eat them. That's why. Into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So that's the, the whole idea there. So the, the buzzards were not eating such things as squirrels or whatever buzzards eat now. Uh, they would have been eating vegetation like the rest of us. A question from George, Pastor Wolf Miller. In Mark 12, verses 18 through 25, Jesus informs the Sadducees that they do not know their scripture when they ask about whose wife the woman will be in heaven among the seven brothers. I cannot find any answer to that question in the Old Testament that states whether they will neither marry but be like angels in heaven. I do find it in the book of Enoch. At the time, was the book of Enoch considered scripture? I have read that Jesus was familiar with Enoch, and early Christians did consider this work canonical. Thanks so much for your input. I don't know. So on the book of Enoch, I had always thought that when Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures, he was getting after the fact that the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection is consistently taught throughout all the Old Testament. Even when Jesus says God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not the God of the dead, but the living, that itself is a testimony of the resurrection. And we have the, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body taught all through the Old Testament. So that when the Sadducees who didn't confess or believe in the resurrection bring this little trick question to Jesus, like the woman who was married to so many brothers and then they all die, whose wife is the resurrection? The problem is they were just using this example to show the what they thought was the absurdity of the resurrection. And Jesus says, look, no, this is clearly taught, Old Testament, as well as we know the New Testament. To the book of Enoch, I, I don't know the answer to that. I know Jude quotes it. I know it's got some crazy stuff in there but I don't want to say much more than that. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Joe says, how do you answer an honest question in a loving and gentle way when someone you love reacts to current events in a matter-of-fact way with the statement, God makes mistakes too? How would you approach that? Uh, well, okay, so this is the, the conversation we have in this culture right now. And understand that we have lost the common 
understanding of Scripture. We don't have a biblical knowledge now. I mean, 100 years ago, uh, it was much more readily evident that humanity, the culture here in America, had a, a biblical knowledge background of what's in the Bible. And so when you have these questions that are coming up, the, the source is not going to be from the Bible, the answer to the question. So a statement like, God makes mistakes too. Well, that's just, it, it, this is kind of where society is going. Because they don't have that basic understanding of Scripture. They're not getting this from the Scripture. They're just saying, well, it must be that way. It must be that uh, God is still learning because if he was good and he was all-powerful, well, then there wouldn't be any evil or he would do something about it. But we, we don't want to go into the realm of of our own understanding. Ever since the fall into sin, we've lost that knowledge of God. And so what God is doing is he's giving us that knowledge, that revealed knowledge of who he is and what he does. And so in, in scripture, we, we understand the, the attributes of God, that God, of course, is perfect. He is complete, that there's nothing in him that is still growing in knowledge. God knows all things, so he knows everything. And so in that foreknowledge of these events, God who is eternal, the past and the future and the present, they're all present to him, all at the same time. Now, for us, of course, that doesn't make sense because we are finite and we can't comprehend that. We only know this concept of something the future that we can guess at or something in the past that we can reflect upon or the events that are happening before our eyes right now. But God, in his foreknowledge, he, he knows all this. And in his providence, he is at work in creation itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, Moses tells us when he's teaching the Israelites that you're going to go into this, this land of Canaan. And in that land of Canaan, you are going to be tricked and tempted to have a false imagination of who I am, God says. You're going to fall into all the false worship. That's worship without God's word. And so he tells them very clearly that God is the rock. Okay? He's the rock, and his work is perfect. Okay, it, it's complete. There's nothing lacking in it. That's who he is. All of his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness, a God without, without iniquity, and just and upright is he. This is our God. Now, we wouldn't know that from natural knowledge. I mean, natural knowledge is just what we can ascertain from nature. We just look at experience, we just observe things, and we come to a conclusion that we have. But it's the revealed knowledge, the knowledge that we have in the written text of Scripture that assures us who God is and what God does. Uh, another example would be like in Job chapter 37, when you have this, this whole interaction, this conversation is going on. Well, do you not know uh, that, that God himself, I mean, he's the one, the, the one with these wondrous works. He has perfect knowledge. That's Job 37 verse 16. He has perfect knowledge, complete knowledge. He knows all these things. So this idea that God makes mistakes, that does not come from the scripture. That comes from a different source. It's natural knowledge. And because of the fall into sin, we have a limited logic. We don't have the ability without God's word to know these things. And so when we're just uh, basing what our assumptions are and what we see or what we hear from the voice of the world, well, we are misinformed. It is the scripture that reveals to us the truth and who God is and what God does. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions on this Tuesday afternoon, February the 28th. Dan has a question about biblical fasting next.
more topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. The Grace of God, the Church's Music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church, that is. 5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal J. Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S dot org, J. Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org. One of the greatest treasures in the Lutheran Church is the Lutheran Confessions, but it has not always been that way. From June 1st to the 3rd, Concordia University Chicago is hosting a seminar on the role of the confessional documents in the 19th century confessional revival. We invite you to come and learn about the recovery of the Lutheran Confessions through lectures and workshops, along with opportunities for prayer and fellowship. For more information, please visit cuchicago.edu slash confessionalism seminar. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. In about 15 minutes, Dr. Michael New of the Charlotte Lozier Institute will join us to discuss several recent surveys on abortion. Then we'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel on Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Pastor Wolfmiller, Dan asks, what is involved with biblical fasting? It's a good question. I think the most helpful thing I have found is from Luther, who talks about there's two types of fasting, and this is very helpful. One is that by which we try to bring this flesh, I'm quoting now, we try to bring the flesh into subjection to the spirit. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 6, 5, where he talks about labors, watching, and fasting. Those three spiritual disciplines, this would be commenting, by the way, on Luther, those three spiritual disciplines, labor, watching, and fasting are probably lost in us, but something good to remember. So watching would be missing sleep to pray and study. Fasting would be missing food to pray and study. Labors, that's working. So we subjugate the flesh in this way. But Luther says there's another type of fasting, which we must bear patiently and yet receive willingly because of our need and poverty. Of this, St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 4.11, even under this present hour, we hunger and thirst. Or Christ in Matthew 9.15, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, they will fast. This kind of fasting, Christ teaches us here while in the wilderness, alone, without anything to eat. He doesn't have the option to eat. And he suffers this without murmuring. 
Luther comments, the first kind of fasting, which we can end whenever you want, you can satisfy it by food, is one kind, but the other kind we observe and bear until God himself changes it and satisfies us. In other words, when food is taken away from you, when, for example, you just don't have anything to eat, you're wandering around in, in affliction and poverty, and there's nothing there. Luther says the much more precious kind of fasting is the second kind of fasting because it moves in greater faith. So there's a kind of fasting where we just stop eating or stop eating a kind of food or stop eating something, and that's to remind our stomach that it is not in charge. Our stomach wants to be the great idol, and it speaks to us not with clear words like the Lord, but just with grumbles, feed me, as if it is our Lord. And so we skip a meal or skip meals for a day or do something like that to indicate to our stomach, hey, I am more than my appetites. I am more than just a body surrounding a mouth and a stomach. My God is not my belly. And that's good. It's a good discipline. But then there's other kinds when the Lord just gives us an affliction. I mean, maybe even we get sick and we lose our appetite or for some reason we can't eat or there's a situation where there's just no food available, whatever. And that we endure with patience, all those afflictions. And that's a, a true kind of fasting that the Lord puts on us and that we endure in his name, praying for his help. Nathan has a question about Second Samuel 22. Pastor Ketchelmeyer contains a song of deliverance authored by King David. The song contains these words. How should we understand this passage? And he's referring to these verses, beginning at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Nathan, thank you for bringing us to the Old Testament. Uh, this is wonderful. And uh, this, this also helps us to look into the Psalms, because this is what David's doing, of course. And in the Psalms, he's teaching us to have a conversation with God, uh, this divine dialogue, that we hear God's word and that we converse back with him. Now, when we look at the Psalms, ultimately and foundationally, we want to see Jesus. So primarily, of course, uh, the one who is incarnate Psalms is Jesus himself. So primarily and first, what we want to look at is this understanding that only the Lord Jesus can truly pray this psalm. All right. So we've got this understanding because he alone has perfect righteousness. He alone is blameless before the Father. He alone is rewarded according to his own righteousness in the sight of the Father. And so we primarily look at this. In Christ, though, as believers, we are accounted righteous. All right. So David, as one who is in Christ by faith, uh, has the righteousness of Jesus before the Father. And so now we, we understand this, this righteousness that we have before the Father on account of Jesus. But as a believer, then there's also this righteousness that we have before others. And so when you look at this psalm, primarily look at Jesus, primarily as the only one who is truly righteous before the Father, the one who knew no sin. But then secondarily, look at it as the believer who can pray this prayer with Jesus being our high priest, our advocate with the Father, the one who knows our weakness, the one who knows our the temptations that we have, but yet there was no sin in him. And so when you look at this in the context of when David is writing this, go back to that 2 Samuel chapter 22 and you go up to verse 1, you see the context of what was taking place there. It says, and David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song. 
Okay, so that's the context. He spoke the words of this song when Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So here we have a situation where David is being judged by others upon earth. And so what David is doing is pleading to God, who is the judge of judges. So when David is being judged before others and he's being condemned with sin because that's what the others see in him, he can plead his case before God, the one who knows the truth. And so that's why he can say, judge me based upon my righteousness. Now, again, foundationally, we can only have righteousness before God through faith alone in Christ person in work alone, because only Jesus is truly righteous. But as we stand forgiven before him for the sake of Jesus, then we also then stand in this righteousness before others. And so now he's being challenged by others. This is really an eighth commandment type of, a, of an issue. He's being challenged by the enemies who are trying to condemn him. It's bearing false witness about him, telling lies about him, betraying him, slandering him, hurting his reputation. And so who does David plead his cause to? Is to Yahweh, because Yahweh knows the truth of the matter. And so when you look at this psalm, which is Psalm 18, tie it together with Psalm 7, and, and I think that it would shed a little bit more light on this, because you understand this in the same kind of a context. So in Psalm 7, like at verse starting at verse 9, it says this, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, that's the believers, you who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. So God alone is righteous. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So this is Psalm 7, verses 9 through 11. And it's in that context in Psalm 7, right before that, where you hear the plea. The plea is, O Lord my God, if I have done this, okay, being accused of something, if there is wrong in my hands, okay, being accused of something, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, okay, you're being accused of something, you're playing before the judge of judge, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then you have this petition that the judge of judges would act, act in his defense, would deliver him from the hands of his enemy. And this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer when we say, deliver us from evil, that evil of the evil one, the devil who is the accuser, Satan, who, who is always trying to accuse us of our sin before others. And we plead our case with God because in Christ we have no sin, in Christ. Okay, there is no condemnation. We are new creation. And so in Psalm 7, it goes on to say, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself up against the fury of my enemies and awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. In other words, bring justice here. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high that Yahweh judges the peoples and judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. So in this context, what David is playing is that he's playing that God would judge him according to David's righteousness, 
Okay, the way that David acted in accordance with God's word. But of course, that foundationally has to be a believer who is righteous by faith. So we have the righteousness of Christ, and now we are beginning to act righteously toward our neighbor. So that's how he can plead this, my righteousness. You know, O Lord, what has happened. You know my heart. This is why uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, talking about Jesus, is that Jesus is not going to judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I mean, so you think of the poor, the afflicted, the meek of the earth. These are the ones who are being oppressed. These are the ones who are being accused of things, and they have no recourse. They, they have no one to go to. Maybe there's a corrupt judge. Maybe there's a corrupt politician, whoever it may be. They have no one to plead their case with. But they can always plead before the God of all, the judge of all judges, and say, take up my case, O Lord. Okay, I'm not getting justice here on earth, but O Lord, you know the truth. I think that's really well said, and I I like to think of it in this way that, so the first, I mean, the reason why this passage is so difficult is because it seems like the opposite of our confession of sins. Lord, I'm a sinner. How could we ever dare to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm righteous? I think the first question, whenever we see that word righteous or righteousness, we think, well, is that Christ's righteousness given to me by faith, or is it my righteousness uh, worked by the Holy Spirit in my life of love? We always think of righteousness as our works, but it's the first instinct of the Christian would say, well, is this the righteousness that belongs to Jesus? But I think in this text, it is talking about our righteousness, the things that we do in contrast to the wicked. And so it goes something like this. The wicked are those who throw off the commands of God, who ignore the commands of God, who despise the commands of God. The righteous are those who keep the commands of God, even though they don't perfectly live according to them, they do have the commandments. So there's a big difference between those who think you shouldn't steal and those who think that it doesn't matter. Take what you want. It's all by power. So that we have the law of God, and even though we don't perfectly keep it, that is our, it says it like here, all his rules were before me, his statutes I did not turn aside. I believe that the Lord says you shall not commit adultery. Does that mean that all my thoughts and words and actions perfectly keep that? No, but at least I know that that's what the Lord has commanded while the wicked throw it out. I know that you shouldn't kill, murder. Does that mean that I never speak ill of my neighbor or get angry in my heart? No, but I have the commandments as opposed to the wicked who simply throw them out. So David and those who belong to Jesus are the righteous ones in that we keep the law of God. We treasure the law of God. Even though we don't follow it in all of our ways, we know when we break it, and that is even part of our righteousness that comes through repentance and faith. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One. He's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. You can purchase Reading Isaiah with Luther and Has American Christianity Failed? on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, thank you. Oh, it's great to be here, Todd. Pastor Wolfmiller, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Michael New joins us from the Charlotte Lozier Institute for a few minutes on the other side of the break to discuss several recent surveys on abortion.
Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Issues Etc. listeners are needed to vote for President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by Midnight Central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858.